This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast features Laura Fields of the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation. We discuss the Keystone Rose and Rye Project, Dick Stoll, and the history of whiskey to name a few things. Do reach out to Laura and let her know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guest. She's Laura Fields. I'm with Shane. This is Fermented Adventure, the podcast. And today, we're going to talk all things Laura Fields. We're going to talk history of whiskey. We're going to catch up. Laura, you were a guest of the podcast back in June of 2019. We've had you on at different times with the uh, Rosen Rye Distillation at George Washington's Mount Vernon with Steve Bayshore. I want to welcome you back to the podcast. Thank you. I feel welcome. You are like you are almost like this um, reoccurring guest that we say, "Hey, anytime you have something to talk about, come on the podcast." And you always really have something to talk about. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> I'm never really without words. So, and you know, so what we're going to do is we're going to catch up on what's been going on with the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation, the Seed Spark Project. We're going to talk about some of the things that are going on with the things that you're planning. But what we talked about is you're very passionate about whiskey history, specifically Pennsylvania whiskey history. You are a wealth of knowledge. You are a, you you know, you seek this out all the time. And and it's like you find these little nuggets and then you post them or you share them. I'm like, wow, mind blown. This is so cool. So hopefully (laughs) what we can do is, this will become a reoccurring segment. We haven't come up with a fancy name or title. Uh, maybe it's uh, talking uh, whiskey history with Laura Fields or something. We'll we'll come up with a, a, a some sort of fun title. Maybe that'll come out by the end of the podcast. Let's yeah. run right into this and talk about what's going on with the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation. Well, um, we are, I mean, nothing ever stops in farming, right? Agriculture just steamrolls right through everything. I mean, as many things um, that I'm involved in that were kind of postponed due to COVID, um, farming was not one of them. Um, farmers don't get the opportunity to take a break, um, which is helpful when you're trying to propagate seed. So um, we have been basically bringing the amount of keystone rose and rye um, that we've had and just, you know, growing that project and growing the amount of grain we have in the ground. So, you know, I know we started back in um, 2015 with that five ounces of grain, but this year 
Um, and the planting season is just behind us. It um, basically ended in the beginning of October. And um, right now we have about 400 acres in the ground across the state. Actually, more than that. It's it's a little bit more than that. So, I mean, onward and upward, right? <laughs> so it's been quite a bit of growth. So, I mean, for those that are not familiar with Keystone Rose and Rye, give them mm-hmm. a little bit of an understanding about the project that you're working on and just take them through about 400 acres now from a right. couple little seeds. I mean, this is like Jack and the Beanstalk, like a couple little seeds, you throw them to the ground. <laughs> And then rye appears, and then you take some of those seeds and you put those in the ground, and this just just continues to grow upon itself. Yes, I mean uh, the the project was always driven toward um, providing for distilleries. Um, Distilleries are incredibly helpful for a project like this because they can buy direct, they can buy um, unmalted grain, they don't need a middleman. And my nonprofit focuses on small farmers. Um, making money, basically giving them a um, value-added grain that they can grow and make some money on. And distillers can write a check directly to the farmer, which is not really done in the world of commodity grain. So these incredibly value-adding grains like Rosen, um, you know, are why we focused on it, why we focused on these specific grains. Not only are they incredibly flavorful, they have connections to um, distilling history in Pennsylvania. Um, The distillery Michters, um, which used to be in Schaeferstown, Pennsylvania, um, we know for a fact that they used Rosen specifically because their jugs from the 50s and 60s, um, when Lou Foreman was um, basically starting the brand of Michters, it's printed on the back of every one of those jugs. We use Rosen Rye. And so the last master distiller at Schaeferstown was Dick Stoll. Um, Dick Stoll, I met with him back in um, 2015 with Eric Wolf, and they mentioned to me that they really would have liked to have used this grain, but it no longer exists. And that kind of blew my mind. I mean, I was getting into the seed project at the time and I was like, how, how can it not exist? <laughs> And sure enough, it did not. There was no place in the country growing it. um, And there was no way to get any of it in any amount. So we literally had to start from scratch. And that's where we, um, well, not not me, um, Penn State uh, started with five ounces of seed. And then um, in 2016, when I reached out to them early on in 2016, I was like, you know, I I would love to um, see more of this grown. Like, how's this project going to work? And they were like, well, it's not going to work. I mean, we, we grew this tiny little bit of it, but we have no reason to go forward with it. It was just kind of like a pet project. And I was like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was like, how much money do you need to keep this going? And he told me. So I cut him a check that day and they took the small amount of seed that they had and replanted it. And then by the next year, we had about um, a quarter acre. And then it just, you know went from there. But the entire time, the inspiration had always been Dick Stoll um, saying that he wanted that grain. And this is the, you know, last master distiller of Pennsylvania. And for someone like me, who's so enraptured with the history of Pennsylvania rye, knowing that this man was responsible for making some of the last Pennsylvania rye whiskey in the state, and that his incredible wealth of knowledge was going to be part of this project. It, yeah, it just, 
was my happy place to finally be able to have enough of it in 2019 when I spoke to you last um, you know, was when they you, distilled it. You know how they name streets after people as yeah. paying honor to them? I, I think in some way, I mean, it's been called Keystone Rosenrai and however it got that name, but it's almost like you want to put maybe, you know, Dick Stoll's name somewhere on that name of Rosenrai just to pay pay homage to, you know, look, you're somebody that really, I, I think, again, appreciates the history, appreciates yes. where we've come from to where we are today. And your thirst for knowledge on that is, to me, it's infectious. And and <laughs> that, that's why our conversations tend to go down all these rabbit holes. And that may happen again. So the, the idea that it started with a small amount and how many, you know, rose and rye, how many, you know, farmers now are producing rose and rye? Well, we have nine farming partners now. Um, you know, it, it all started with Penn State. They had it until um, I believe it was 2019 um, when we started branching out because we needed enough seed um, to distill first and foremost. Um, which was uh, basically the equivalent of about 500 pounds, 600 pounds, somewhere in that realm. Um, it was enough for Stolen Wolf to do one run. And that was done in 2019 while Dick, Dick Stoll was still alive. Um, God rest him. He was what an amazing man. Um, but he did pass, um, what was it, 2021? 2020? I can't I remember it's 2020 anymore. And, 2020. Yeah. And, um, you know, around the time of COVID and yeah. you know, where that became more blown up and whatever. But yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, I, I think it was even mentioning it today. I mean, when you yeah. meet the man and not having other than that one um, opportunity to watch him through the whole distillation process and everybody was around and all the wonderful, you know, the, 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 it was so the, the atmosphere Right, because you were there. Was, it was kind. It was yes. It was um, entrepreneurial. It was it was such a connection to the whole understanding of how distillation happens. But you know, I, I think there's so few times we get to watch somebody do the craft. Right. Well, especially Dick Stoll, because yeah. one of the things that had always been a concern for me, um, or is, it still remains a concern for me, you know, when you're working with these heritage grains, um, a lot of the smaller distillers are kind of, you know, experimenting themselves with learning how to distill, um, learning by doing. And that wasn't an option for me. This grain had not existed in, you know, half a century. And here I was bringing it back. I needed it to be in the best hands possible. And here's this man that has actually distilled with it before, understands what the capability of this grain is. And so taking his expertise and his experience and applying it to the grain again, 50 years later, is like, I, I couldn't have been more perfect. And the fact that he lived to run that first run with us and he was there, you know, sitting with us and, and instructing Eric and, and, you know, the, the fact that Lisa Roper Wicker was there and that Steve Bayshore was there and that you were there and, you know, all of these different friends and uh, the group was incredible um, just to sit back and watch them work. And then to be able to taste that distillate right off the still and just be blown away by how different and how incredibly special this was, how it tasted entirely different. I mean, and that's the other thing too, because here I am sitting on Tenterhooks, like, is this 
going to be crap. Like, what is this going to taste like? You know, I could have been working all these years for nothing. And then to finally have that come to fruition and have it taste so good was, yeah, it felt great. <laughs> the, the word picture or the idea in my head is it's, you know, going back to somebody that had had that had expertise on working on, let's say, an exotic car. And right. there's very little there are very little of those people around anymore that can work on those cars. And you take that car to somebody and you just anticipate turning the ignition for the first time, hoping that all the things you did put it back together and made it work. And sometimes it takes somebody to find, in this case, that old antique car in a barn. Yep. I, you know, i.e., you know, discovering what Penn State has in their vault and, and the seeds and then resurrecting it and bringing it back to life. And the one thing, you know, I will always cherish is, you know, Dick's perspective and his humility. He was like, this is really no big deal. I don't get it. You know, your people were making all this big fuss about this. We we (laughs) did this every day. It was no big deal. And, you know, it's smelling it. It's tasting it. It's 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 just picking his brain for stuff. And it was like, "Eh, it's I want to go fishing, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But he also had um, this very old school. Um, understanding of what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the quality control. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he understood everything that was important about distilling the fermentation, the yeast, the, you know, all of the foundational knowledge that you need to distill because anybody can run a still, you know, and especially nowadays when everything's push button, but he understood it on a very elemental level. And there's very few of those master distillers still around um, that can do it all from scratch, that understand the grain, that understand, you know, I mean, the man had his hands in earth. <laughs> it's like he always talked about, well, my job was a ditch digger. And, you know, I I was, he was so, couldn't get more down to earth than that. You know, uh, his understanding was just from the floor up, you know. And that to me was priceless and still is, you know, I, I miss him terribly. I didn't have a chance to know him nearly as well as some others, but um, thankfully I did get a chance to know him a little bit toward the end and his wonderful wife and, and, and Eric who keeps his memory alive. And it's, it really was something, but it well, still is, you know, because Eric Wolf is carrying it forward and, and what, what a talented distiller, you know, um, he's working with the Rosen still, he's distilling it um, every year. Since um, they just released uh, the straight whiskey last year, and um, we had a chance to taste it at the American Whiskey Convention. Um, the first that was actually the first time that I had tried the straight was at the American Whiskey Convention, and I was running around like, Woo-hoo! so great, it's so good. <laughs> and thankfully, I have some bottles that I'll be keeping for posterity, but then um, they still have some in the barrels and we'll be releasing it. This next release won't be um, until it's a bottled in bond, which will be next year. Now this is again, this is the connection to history. This is yes. the living history. This is going back a couple hundred years to understand the whiskey history, specifically how it's been impacted through Pennsylvania distilling, farming, malting, cooperage stuff. And we're going to get into uh, uh, hopefully a bunch of those things moving forward in future segments. You talked about the farming partners right now and growing that out. Where 
else are you in the farming, you know, farming situation and, and working with farmers to grow more grain? And what is the total volume that you'd like to see with the Keystone Rose and Rye? Oh, the sky's the limit. I mean, I, I want to see people from other states buying from Pennsylvania farmers. That would be a win. Um, and in large quantities. Um, I would like people to associate Rosen with Pennsylvania, hence Keystone Rosen. Um, so people will always think Keystone State, Pennsylvania, when they think of Rosen. Um, the, the whole point of this is to benefit farmers. Um, and the distillers, <laughs> obviously my love for whiskey, my love for Pennsylvania history, my love for distilling, I mean, that's just icing on the cake, you know, um, to have them be able to distill with Rosen and produce some of the best rye whiskey in the world. Again, um, returning to history, that was the case before Prohibition, after Prohibition, even actually um, right up into the 50s and early 60s, um, yeah, 70s even, because um, Michter's was still producing all of um, Wild Turkey's rye until 1974. So, you know, there's there's so much that I want to include in all of this. But I mean, when it comes to the farmers, um, I always want to make sure that whatever they're growing is bought. So whatever they're growing, I mean, there's always got to be an end game here, right? If they're producing or they're growing five acres of ground um, on their property and just experimenting, because, you know, five acres isn't a huge commitment, but to some people it is. And it's still an experimental thing. That's five acres less of whatever crop they would normally be growing. Um, so they want to see a positive experience come out of it. And I need to make sure that every ounce of that five acres is purchased by a distiller. So before they even plant it, they have to have that handshake agreement or that contract or whatever the case may be with the buyer so that the farmer has a good experience and doesn't end up throwing his hands up in the air and going, you know, why am I growing heritage grains? This is pointless. I've seen that too many times. You know, you've read all those articles about people growing heritage grains and then being disappointed with the lodging issues and, the, you know, but all of that is, you know, doesn't matter if you have someone buying everything at the other end and covering your costs. They'll still be happy with the outcome and still be willing to move forward and grow it again as long as they know that there's money on the other end. So all of those 400 acres that I've got in the ground and more are bought and paid for. It's, you know, it's not like we're just growing for giggles. This is not, you know, a game. We're not, we're not playing at this. This is, you know, production. Um, and all of the numbers all have to add up in the end, you know, um, it's well-planned, let's put it that way. Uh, and, um, we have a distillery coming online in Pennsylvania that's buying 250 acres, you know, that's, that's a lot and they've committed to it, you know, and we sit down and we have meetings and make sure that everybody knows what page we're on. Um, so, you know, there's no mistaking that we're not playing at this. And the farmers need to know that too, because there is no one more skeptical <laughs> about, you know, me coming to them, me, city girl, Laura, the way they see me, you know, um, who are you? And why do you think that I need to listen to you? And I need to explain to them and win their trust and help them understand that this isn't about me. This is about them. And, you know, as hard as it is for people to believe because they've been screwed over so many times mm -hmm. um, by the commodity market and by, you know, uh, their politics and everything, they, they tend to be very um, tentative about the relationships that they form. And so I have to talk to them face to face 
and say, look, I'm for real. This is for real. And we're, we're really, all I want to do is help you. That's it. And they're always like, what are you trying to do for you? You know, <laughs> so, but historically speaking, I mean, this yeah. is how it was with the relationship to from from the buyer to the farmer, Correct. For whatever they were going to make, whether it was, you know, baked goods, um, feed for their livestock or whatever they were raising. And, you know, going back to the idea that every farm had a distillery, every farm was distilling something because of you know, what was left over or well, not every had, farm. No, but they but had I, I relationships with somebody that would yes. take that from them that they knew if they put it in the ground. And I think this is the main point for you. If your farmers know they're putting that in the ground and taking time to cultivate it, somebody's buying it. Some, yes. It's got to use somewhere. It's farmers not just going to get plowed over. Right. First and foremost, farmers are businessmen. They are entrepreneurs. They they know um, that the grain that they have planted, normally corn or soy, has a buyer. You know, and that buyer may be the commodity market, and they may um, be beholden to the fluctuations in that market. But they know that they've got a buyer, which is why you keep seeing farms, you know, renting more land to grow more corn to sell more corn. They need to be able to cover their costs, and sometimes more doesn't equal what they'd like it to, you know? So sometimes having that five acres or that 10 acres or, you know, that 150 acres um, of another crop is going to be hugely beneficial, especially when they're getting deposits to put it in the ground, you know? And they're, they're forming relationships with a customer that is not going to fluctuate the same way that the commodity market is. A distiller is a good partner and a good business partner because um, they commit to buying and they know each other, you know, and, and the farmer can direct ship, you know, so they can, they can go to the distillery and visit and see their grain turned into whiskey. How incredible is that? So, you know, these people, when they like Bob McDonald, for yeah, instance. I was going to say, when you said that Bob McDonald literally is on site, he's got this big smile, he and his wife, and you know, they're, they're loving seeing the fruits of their labor end up in a bottle. Yes. And his growth um, and Dancing Star Farms is the name of his farm. And um, his growth isn't to do with me. Um, it's to, all to do with his business savvy. Um, he has basically he's focused on corn um, and on heritage corn varietals. Um, and I met up with him because I invited him and um, all of his products to come out to the American Whiskey Convention in 2016, um, which is, uh, I think we may have met before that, um, but that was the first year that he attended the American Whiskey Convention. And the whole point of him being there is so that the other distillers can meet him. And so he made a lot of handshake agreements that day at the American Whiskey Convention and met a lot of distillers that wanted to buy his product. And now he's online peddling his wares. He's got, you know, his website where people can go and visit and, and, pick out grain that they want. Um, he's worked with the Moonshiners. He's actually been on the Moonshiners show, the one on, um, what is it, the Discovery Channel history? I forget. Discovery Channel, I think. <laughs> but um, they've distilled his product quite a few times now um, on the show. And they did that show on the Rosen Rye. So yeah, he's got his tentacles and everything. And, and, and he's very savvy. And now he's got his LLC and um, he's got other farmers that are working for him. So Again, onward and upward. And this is just, you know, the seeds planted. Oh, God, metaphorically and, <laughs> and literally. But he, he um, 
he's got a lot going on and he is a wonderful example for me to put in front of other uh, growers and say, you know, look at what this man has done and look at the achievements that he's made and look at what is possible for you if you decide that this is something you want to get involved in. And I help the whole way, you know, I speak farmer and I speak distiller. So (laughs) helpful to know both languages and be able to help them communicate with each other because they certainly wouldn't, you know, they don't communicate with each other. Like you said, historically, they did have this long um, trusted relationship that they had formed over, you know, decades of working together. And um, those relationships were all severed after prohibition shut everybody down. It wasn't just the distillers that suffered during prohibition. It was the farmers in a huge way. That's why you see um, Roosevelt after when prohibition came to an end, he basically said, the first thing we're going to do is get farmers back to work. And we're going to do that by allowing them to grow grain for the brewers, for the maltsters, for the um, distillers and get them back online. So it was, you know, his efforts after prohibition were for the farmers. You know, we tend to forget that is basically the point I was making. What's exciting for me, you speak farmer, you speak distiller, I speak consumer and fan. And I think what's exciting as a consumer and a fan, just like you are as well, is you take something like Keystone Rose and Rye and you allow other farmers to grow it. And then you allow other distillers to distill it. So you talked about Stolen Wolf and they have their interpretation or their distillate, their juice, they're putting it in their barrels, different chars, different time frames, different toastings. You know, they can certainly work with the mash bill. And then you have other farmers and other distillers. And we're going to get so many different flavor profiles based on the provenance or the terroir of where everything is happening, the water. And that's exciting as a craft, you know, as a craft whiskey consumer. That's exciting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's very beneficial, isn't it? Because, you know, being able to say our grain was grown in Pennsylvania, um, it's in the whiskey world now. This is not really something that consumers think about, right? Um, It's part of the purpose of the American Whiskey Convention to start getting consumers to think about it, to ask the uh, distillers when you go on the distillery tour, where are you sourcing your grain? Because it does matter. And we're trying to prove to people and help them understand that it does matter. The type of soil um, that you're using affects the grain. And we're seeing that even in the SeedSpark project, you know, we're seeing that the grain that's grown in Gettysburg on that hollowed ground, you know, in the battlefield, uh, that's a very dense clay soil. And it performs differently than the limestone shale and um, stony, um, well-drained soils out in the West. Uh, The amazingly dark, rich soil of Lancaster is having wonderful yields. I mean, all of these different grain, I mean, it's all the same grain, right? It all started in the same place. Um, But when you take grain and you grow it in a different place, it performs differently. And we're going to see that over time. Um, And that's one of the other um, efforts behind the SeedSpark project to create different pockets in Pennsylvania that are growing the grain and growing it differently because they're the entire state of Pennsylvania is made up of all these different microclimates and, 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 and different regional, um, you know, personalities, like all the different ground is, is very different. The soil is very different. The way that, you know, um, 
the Susquehanna Valley is very different than the, the, the Monongahela Valley. And those different growing environments are going to affect that grain differently. And the different distillers are working with local growers to use that local grain. And that's all going to affect their whiskey. Obviously, their their process and everything is going to affect it. All the things that you mentioned, the barrel and um, the fermentation, the yeast. Every, I mean, yeast, all of that. It's, different it, stills that they're using. Yeah, it's endless. Yeah, and it's endless, really. What, what we're you setting do. a date. So sometime in 10 years from now, we'll be around. <laughs> right. We're going to bring all these different bottles together from all these different distillers that have produced Keystone Rose and Rye. We'll bring all those farmers together. And and why I say 10 years is, as you mentioned, Stolen Wolf now has the ability to do a bottle and bond. That's, you know, four years. And all these other distillers are now coming online. Um, Liberty, Liberty Pole will have a bottle and bond. Said at the same time. I like that. <laughs> Sorry. Liberty Pole. Um, yeah. And the distillers that are now bringing this in, after 10 years, they should have a really good you know, we should have a really good sampling of all these different farms and all these different distillers that are working with this Keystone Rose and Rye. No, so I think that's fun. a great idea. Ten years yeah. from now. Pardon the interruption. If you like what you hear, if you love what you're hearing, please share the podcast. Please take a screenshot of the podcast, post it on your social media, tag us, just to let everybody else know about Fermented Adventure, the podcast. We'd be grateful for your help to grow our podcast. If people have followed you in different opportunities on social media, you post a tremendous amount about history and about whiskey history, and much of it focuses on Pennsylvania. You've launched the American Whiskey History page on Facebook for you. And even today, you had something about Cooperage's um, you've, you've posted other things about different distilleries and dis distilleries that are no longer in play right now. What can people expect when they go to that American whiskey history page? And what are you looking to convey or educate people about? Um, well, the major thing that I'm trying to do, I mean, you have to understand, I've been researching this for about a decade now, um, specifically Pennsylvania distillers. Um, the individual distilleries that existed in Pennsylvania before Prohibition, um, not only were they very prolific, <laughs> but um, they all were individuals. Um, we have this, this um, incorrect understanding now of what rye whiskey used to be. There's this idea out there that Pennsylvania whiskey was Monongahela whiskey and that rye um, that was made in Maryland was just had more corn in it. And there were those understandings are um, basically come from the teachings of, of Dave Pickerel um, before he passed, another incredible distiller, an incredible, incredibly knowledgeable person. Um, but he, everybody in America and, and the, the distillers, they all come from this um, bourbon tradition, which is understandable because, you know, bourbon was the whiskey that relaunched, you know, this whiskey renaissance in America, um, people coming back to it and, and realizing that, oh my God, there's this incredible whiskey that we haven't been drinking. Let's try it. And there's a lot of, um, you know, information out there, um, but it's all bourbon bias, you know, and you have to understand that bourbon grew out of rye, not the other way around. And we tend to see um, bourbon drinkers coming into rye now, but they're coming into it Again, with that bourbon bias, they want their rye to taste like bourbon. But one of the things that people don't really understand is that these distilleries that existed in Pennsylvania before Prohibition were vastly different from one another. 
But the one thing that they all had in common was that the entire country and world understood that the best whiskey being made in the United States was being made in Pennsylvania. It was valuable. It was um, very different. Everything about it was very different. And it certainly was not made with column stills, which is what you find a lot of um, distilleries using now to make rye whiskey, especially in Kentucky. I would say the bulk of, of the whiskey that's available on the liquor store shelves is either from um, Indiana or from Kentucky, which does not speak to the history of rye whiskey at all. Um, and so and, and, we're not, and we're not leaving out our friends in Tennessee. No, no, they're, of course not. <laughs> but but they're, you know, it, 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 you look, here's the fun part about what you're saying. And this is what resonates with me. If you, you know, to where we are today in the whiskey world, or at least the American whiskey world, it's mm -hmm. almost as if this is only a 20 year old product. Right. Because of where we are in terms of the resurrection of bourbon. But when you have a better understanding of the history and you go back right. hundreds of years and understand, as you pointed out, that the best rye whiskey was made in Pennsylvania. Whiskey itself was, you know, understandably somewhat territorial and um, regional and different flavors and different profiles. I think it makes drinking whiskey more exciting. And, you know, we can go into at another segment talking about just Michter's. Ethan Smith, you know, he's he he loves the history of Michter's and, you know, talking about Pennsylvania Michter's and how Michter's is now, you know, has, has moved to Kentucky and different stories and different variations of how the history has been, you know, muddled, right? We see a bottle of Michter's on a show, Billions. Okay. And we think, and we think, Wow, you know, that's where Michter started. You know, nobody knew about that. <laughs> As we go, this is fun because we're going to talk about the history. You touched on it. I mean, even in a few minutes, you talk about, you know, one thing leads to another and here we are. Well, know. okay. So one of the things, I just want to touch on something you were saying, because one of the like things that's so popular now is the dusty hunting. You know how everybody, like all these old shows, um, the, the fact that whiskey started to come back into popularity because of Mad Men and stuff. So, so everybody's looking for these like bottles from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, right? And th th to think of the 80s as being like a long time ago is so funny, but <laughs> um, it is in the grand scheme of things because, you know, whiskey, the whiskey renaissance didn't really take place until, you know, after 2000, you know, um, the Michters that you're talking about, that, that wasn't born until 2002. So, you know, the 90s is when they were launching um, small batch collection for Jim Beam wasn't until 92. So all these brand new things that everybody's getting excited about, these are all so new. And the fact that people are looking for these dusties is because there was a different production process back then. There was a different way that whiskey was being made, um, slightly different, but different enough for people to recognize when they taste those bottles. Oh, wow, this is different. They've tweaked things a little bit. A lot of it has to do with the grain. Um, and, you know, the process, uh, the different distillers that are coming online. Um, but we have to understand that with that, you have information loss. <laughs> that, And it, this happens with any topic. You know, people forget what happened in, in history. So my job is to try and help remind them <laughs> that, you know, there is with all of this renaissance happening, there is a lot of opportunity here to learn from history and apply that history to a modern industry. You know, the, the fact that Todd Leopold brought back the three chamber, 
I mean, that's to me, I mean, that's my happy place because what, the, the hysterical thing is that, you know, I know so much about these three chambers and I know that Pennsylvania was, they were ubiquitous throughout the, the state um, and into Maryland, hey, even into Kentucky. But if you go to the Bourbon Hall of Fame and you see all the different stills that are there, there's no three chamber and that kills me. But here, Todd Leopold's going like, Hey, look at what I got, guys. Like, I used history to recreate this still. And now other distillers are looking at this going, huh, maybe he's got something here. And, because the and minute- he found that in a little blurb. I think the recipe and the whole understanding of the three chamber was in a a, a, a newspaper article or something or a small publication that they. Well, found. he's he's quite the historian. He's done quite a lot of digging. And and um, he and I have talked about it. He um got the idea for the still and the design for the still from um, Hiram Walker, the plant that was in um, Illinois. So there's, I mean, he's using a specific copper um, three chamber, but in Pennsylvania, we had wood three chambers, wood four chambers, wood two chambers. Um, But the chamber still was that beer still. And then, um, the beer still was then finished in a copper doubler. And that was just the way it was done. And there was usually a large uh, copper worm involved in a flake stand. I mean, there's all of this history and stuff is lost. And the fact that there's only one of them, even though the entire state of Pennsylvania was using them, <laughs> it's like, ah, <laughs> you know, I, I, I need people to understand that the, the rye whiskey was a different product, as different as scotch is from bourbon. There is, you know, the scotch people are like, oh, bourbon tastes like bourbon. And bourbon people are like, oh, I don't like scotch, it's too smoky, you know, or whatever. Like those differences of flavor profile are leaps and bounds from each other. You know, one's made with uh, malt or um, barley, right? And one's made from mostly corn. And they always talk about rye is the flavoring grain, right? Well, if your entire product is made from the flavoring grain, guess what's going to have a bit more flavor to it, (laughs) you know? Exactly. Dense, incredible, oily, you know, estery, fruity, incredible spirit that doesn't exist in modern times, but is going to, you know, find a place, I feel at least, um, with the use of rosin, possibly, (laughs) Um, but also with these old techniques, find a place back in the uh, American whiskey zeitgeist. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the name of our our, our uh, segments are going to be talking rye with Laura Fields. And uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, no, that, that's no, <laughs> no, don't be sorry. No, that's that's exactly to to my point. As far as your enthusiasm for history, your desire to share what is factual basis, and that's what happens with history, especially in today's world, that it gets muddled, right? It, it, you know, well, I heard from here and therefore I saw it online and that becomes the understanding of what that fact is. And you bring it back to the history of it. You talk to the people, you research it. That's what you do. You get a lot of of repetitive um, information, regurgitated information, I guess, is the word Mm -hmm. I should use. Like the information that was put out by Dave Pickerel um, back in the early 2000s about what rye whiskey was, has been repeated over and over and over and over again to where it's become just an, you know, an understanding. But one man's understanding is not the history of Pennsylvania. Um, There's 
a lot more there. It's, it's not that what he was saying was wrong. It was just entirely too limited in scope. And we need to look at all of it in order to appreciate the variations and, and the and the differences um, that existed across the state. But anyway, I, I, I just. That's what we're going to do. We're yeah. going to under- <laughs> we'll get there. No, we're we're going to unpack that. And over time, we'll sit down and we'll talk about the different variations of rye because the history of that, where we are, especially in Pennsylvania, and as you pointed out, the resurgence of rye. You got Sagamore down in Maryland with, mm-hmm. you know, you got rye in the name, but you've got all these great producers now making rye a forefront that they're not, it's not a flavoring grain, it's a spirit that they're using and distilling and fermenting and bottling that people are clamoring over now because now they have an appreciation. Rye isn't that dusty bottle all the way in the back or underneath the liquor cabinet that grandpa had. Now rye is like, how do I get that? How do I make a cocktail with that? Where do I find that? Who's making a great rye? And we're going to, you know, we're going to share more about that history and where rye started, where rye is today, we'll take it from the beginning to all the way through to modern times. I mean, Sagamore is a great example, too, because they have so many lo- the, the local support um, in the Baltimore area and in Maryland is huge. You know, you go to the, the Maryland pages on Facebook and and those folks are, you know, head over heels for it. But it's cause it's local. It's like having a sports team that you mm-hmm. love. You know, the folks in Kentucky love their bourbon and they should. But the people in Pennsylvania should love their rye. And, you know, even the distillers themselves need to understand the history better so that they can um, better appreciate that they are at the center of this this new renaissance happening here. What you say is true that I never really thought of that, that our distillers are our local, like a local sports team. We want to root for them. We want to see them do well. We appreciate their all their efforts. And especially in Pennsylvania, I mean, we're from the Philadelphia area. If our teams do well and they're, you know, they work hard, they fight, they're gritty. I mean, I, I, I very much think it's the same across the state in Pittsburgh. Both cities are blue collar cities. We like to see people roll up their sleeves, work hard. Those farmers, we appreciate them day in and day out. And especially now dealing with things, you know, fertilizer costs and shipping costs and fuel costs and all the things that they're facing just to try to put food on their tables. Going back to your point, look, if a distiller and a farmer can come to an agreement and say, you plant that, I'm buying it, I'm putting it in the bottle, we win, you grow more, I distill more, our our fans, our consumers love it, it builds. It grows right, on they itself. grow together. And it's mm-hmm. it's almost a hedge against all the forces in the world by just making these relationships. Right, and building the local supply chain because, you know, that's part of what made everything so difficult recently is that those, those um you know, holes in the supply chain. And if you're a distiller and you can't get your bottles and you can't get your, you know, barrels and you can't get all of these problems that they run into, if you can't get your grain, <laughs> you ain't making any whiskey. Right. The hell with the bottles, you know, like you need that grain. And when you have a guy down the street who can load it onto his truck and bring it over, there goes your supply chain issue, you know? So, yeah, it, it's not sustainable where we're at right now. You know, we need to be able to look at, at local supply chain and, um, and build upon it. And this is part of that. 
And I, well, I love I'm, being a part of it. I tell you, it just makes me so happy. <laughs> well, I'm excited. And I, I'm looking forward to our future conversations. I really appreciate your time today. I just feel like I, you know, what you do for me is you make me want to learn more. The more I learn, the more I want to enjoy, the more I enjoy, I want to find, you know, more of those producers. So thank you for that. And as we come back, we'll get some updates on the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation, where the Rose and Rye Project, the Keystone Rose and Rye Project is, where other activities are that you're working on. And we'll focus more on maybe one or two historical subjects as it applies to Pennsylvania whiskey history. How's that? Sounds great. Yeah, all the rye is going to sleep now for the winter. So <laughs> under its little blanket of snow. <laughs> all right. Well, it's not snowing here. So let's it is out in the western part of the state. See, oh, micro microclimates, baby. All out right. in the western part of the state and in the central part of the state, they had snow, little blanket of snow. So they're all all the little rye is going to sleep for the winter <laughs> and it'll wake up again in the spring. <laughs> spoken spoken like a true rye enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laura. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye.